Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. You can find that in your bulletin if you don't have a Bible. If you do have a Bible, that is in the New Testament. See Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's about three-fourths of the way through your Bible. We're in Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Starting in verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. And Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. and Whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are grateful for the gift to gather. We're grateful for your word where we pray that this morning your words would be clearly heard. Not my words, but your words. Lord, we thank you for giving us the gift of one another. We thank you for getting those who are here, here safely. Lord, we're grateful that in the midst of this church plant, you have met and provided for all of our needs. You have been kind. Lord, we also praise you for the sweet fellowship that we have here, for the brothers and sisters who care for one another, who encourage one another in the gospel. Thank you for that. Lord, we love because you first loved us. Lord, we pray that the watching world would know that you are God based off of our love for one another. Lord, we pray for our community, pray for our fire department. Lord, we are grateful for those men and women who serve us sacrificially. Lord, we pray that you would continue to protect them. Lord, give Brian Miller, the fire chief, wisdom on how to lead his team. Lord, we pray for our city council here in Westerville that you would give them wisdom to lead righteously. We pray for Mary Kathy Kakuzi for the same thing here in Westerville, that she would resemble righteous leadership. God, we also put before you Salt and Light Church. Lord, as they have their first member meeting since some major changes, Lord, we pray that that member meeting would go well, that you would be magnified, that Christ would be put on display. We also pray for Covenant Community Church in Newark, Lord, we are grateful for their faithfulness in proclaiming the gospel, and we ask that you would continue to allow them to see fruit. Lord, help us 
and other churches in the area and other churches around the world proclaim Christ crucified this morning. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning we're in Mark chapter 14. We've been going through the gospel of Mark for over a year now. And um, a little over a year ago, I believe it was, the super popular documentary, The Last Dance, came out. And it was portraying Michael Jordan and his absolute love for basketball and his time on the Chicago Bulls and the dynasty that they had there in the 90s. And one of the things that you see in this documentary is the immense love that Michael Jordan had for the game of basketball. From a young kid leading all the way up until his retirement, he loved the game of basketball. In his contract with the Bulls, he even had a clause known as for the love of the game clause. And essentially what it was was that Anytime, any place, he was allowed to play basketball. Professional athletes, typically, if they're being paid millions of dollars for their talents, they can only exercise those talents in ways that the team permits. And so Michael Jordan, obviously wildly valuable to the Chicago Bulls, said, I love the game of basketball so much that if I'm going to play for the Bulls, you're going to let me play backyard basketball if I want to play backyard basketball. If I want to shoot some hoops with some kids, I can do that. I can play anytime, anywhere, because I love the game. As you continue to watch the documentary, you also see his immense devotion to his team and to the game of basketball. You see this in his workouts. You see this in his competitive drive. He's known for going off on teammates, punched one in the eye. He's just absolutely devoted to the craft, devoted to the game that he loves. And so it brings this question up of does love for something require devotion. Does love require devotion? I would submit to you that devotion, whatever we're devoted to, devotion reflects our heart. Devotion reflects our heart. Scriptures say from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. It could also be said that from the overflow of our heart, we do things. We are devoted to things. Devotion reflects our heart. And so in today's passage, we'll see three different parties and we'll see three different devotions that each of these different parties have. They're devoted to separate things. Each of them, each of their loves, is identified by their devotion and the lengths they're willing to go for this devotion. And so like a mirror, scriptures say that the, God's word is like a mirror. We put it up, it, it reveals to us who we are. My hope is that this text will reveal where our greatest devotion is, where our greatest love is. So like I said, we've been in Mark. We just finished Mark 13, where Jesus was talking about a lot of future events. And now, Mark 14, we're entering, is the longest chapter in the entire Gospel of Mark. 72 verses. It's a long one. And from chapter 14 to chapter 16, things begin to speed up real quick. So up until this point, Jesus, we've seen Jesus' ministry for about three years, covered in 13 chapters. The last three chapters take place within a week. So we're going to see a bit faster pace of what's going on here. We're going to see more clearly the theme that we've been saying each week with the Gospel of Mark of God restoring his wayward people. Now that plan of restoration is going to pick up the pace a bit. 
We're going to see how he is doing that ultimately through Christ. And so we see in this passage three parties and three devotions. The first one, which you can see in your bulletin, is the religious leader's devotion to power. There's three blanks in your bulletin. That first blank is power, the religious leader's devotion to it. Notice in these first couple verses the precision of the religious leaders. It says it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So it was Wednesday. We've talked about where we are in, in Passion Week, the final week of Jesus's ministry, earthly ministry here. And so we are on Wednesday. Friday, he'll be crucified. Now we are two days before the Passover, which is Wednesday, and they wanted to arrest Jesus by stealth. Now the primary reason for that is because Passover is in a couple days. So when Passover is coming, that means Jews from around the region are flocking into Jerusalem. So there's a big influx of people. And Jerusalem was ruled by Roman rule. And so when you have a lot of Jews coming in to remember God's faithfulness to them, if something were to happen to someone that they admire a lot, it could cause an uproar. And so the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders are trying to be careful to not cause an uproar. So they're not just content with arresting Jesus, but they want to do it in the right way. So this Passover that's getting ready to take place, it commemorates Israel's Egyptian bondage. So if you read the book of Exodus, you begin to see how God sent Moses to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Pharaoh, who's a wicked ruler, would not release God's people from the bondage that Egypt had over them. And so plagues were sent. There's one plague, two plague, three plague. There ended up being 10 total plagues. And so there were nine plagues before this famous 10th plague. And the 10th plague was that the firstborn would be killed. The firstborn all throughout the land of Egypt would be killed by the Lord. And what we see take place is that God tells his people, take a spotless lamb, slaughter it, and then put its blood above your doors. And wherever the blood of the lamb is seen, I'll pass over that household, and the firstborn will not be killed. The firstborn will instead be spared, because I see the blood of the lamb. So we see Passover mentioned here, referencing to that. Then we see the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So what what is this Feast of Unleavened bread. Well, it's a week-long feast, and the first day of it was Passover. So Passover happens, remembering the bondage that the Lord released us from. But Passover kicks off the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is a week-long feast. Now the question is, is why unleavened bread? What is, what's the big deal with unleavened bread? And so one source said leaven, this was helpful, leaven was not yeast, which was uncommon in the ancient world, but fermented dough, a little of which would be left from the previous week to be added to a new lump of dough. So when you had leavened bread, use all of it, but a little bit, and then you'd put that in with the new batch of bread. You'd continue to do that so that the leaven would not be entirely taken up, would not be entirely wasted. And so when you have a feast of unleavened bread, It's saying we're no longer going to take the bit of leaven from the previous batch and put it with the new one. We're going to have a clean slate. 
no more leaven, new batch of dough. So it's essentially a feast of cleanliness. It's a feast of unleavened bread. It's a clean slate. It's cleanliness. So this feast is resembling cleanliness. And this feast of cleanliness, so to speak, is initiated with the Passover. So you see this Passover lamb being provided. God passing over and not killing the firstborn of every household that has the blood of the lamb. And then they have a feast of cleanliness, so to speak. And what the religious leaders do not realize with Jesus is that the great, in fact, the greater Passover lamb is here. It is Passover. It's two days away. And Jesus is the greater Passover lamb. Anyone with his blood over their lives is seen as perfectly clean with the Father. Anyone marked by his blood will not have to pay the penalty of death that sin requires. And so the religious leaders don't know this about Jesus, but they do know that their power is in trouble. Because Jesus at this point in his ministry is pretty popular. That's why they can't arrest him in public. That's why they don't want to publicly kill him because it could easily cause an uproar. And so he's popular. The Jews, many of the Jews actually viewed him as the one who would lead a revolution to take back Jerusalem. There'd be a a, uh, revolution to where Jesus would restore uh, Jewish rule back in their province. That's what they were hoping. That's what they understood when it came to the Messiah, that he would overcome Roman rule. Now, if he, if this hope in this individual, if he is publicly arrested, you can see how a lot of Jews may be very upset and could potentially cause riots. And so these scribes, these priests, these religious leaders are not content with just killing Jesus. It needs to be done the right way. It needs to be done so that their power, their position of power, is not in any way threatened. So they're not just wanting to kill him. They're not just wanting to arrest him. They want to do it in a way that preserves their greatest love. Their greatest love being religious power. So for us this morning, as we consider the religious leaders and their love for power and their inability to recognize the true Passover lamb, for us this morning, are we recognizing the true Passover lamb, or are we consumed with our perceived sense of control, our perceived sense of power over our own lives? Is there any area that we are not willing to hand over? Don't hold control or power in your life so tightly that you overlook the one who has all control and all power. Give that up to Christ. These religious leaders were willing to adjust their plans. They were willing to tweak them to preserve their greatest love. If Christ is our greatest love this morning, are we willing to tweak and adjust our plans for him? Are we willing to submit all of that to him? Is he our greatest love? Is he what we are devoted to? So we see that first party, the religious leaders, and their devotion to power and the lengths that they were willing to take to preserve that power. And now we see Mary's devotion to Jesus. Look in verse 3. We see, and while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, 
a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. So we see a woman interrupting this meal, which was not typically the case. Typically, if a woman was going to interrupt the meal, it was to serve the food. She comes in, goes straight to Jesus, and she begins to anoint him. Reminds us of Psalm 23, where you see the psalmist say, my, my head is anointed, my cup overflows. You anoint my head with oil. So this woman comes in. She interrupts the meal to anoint Jesus' head with oil. John, in his gospel, tells us that this, this woman is Mary, the sister, not, not the mother of Jesus, Mary, but the sister of Martha and Lazarus. She anoints him with this ointment of pure nard, which we can get into what nard is, and you could take a, a deep dive into that, but essentially it is a very costly and very rare type of ointment, the kind of ointment that would cost nearly a year's worth of wages. We see that when uh, it says it's worth over 300 denarii. A denarii was one day's wage. And so if you consider 365 days in the year, then they take 52 off for the Sabbath. Then you have various feasts and festivals. Th- over 300 denarii is a year's salary. And so this ointment was wildly valuable. Likely, it was, it was probably a family heirloom or an inheritance of, of some kind, because this kind of ointment, this kind of perfume, this kind of, of uh, fragrance would typically only be used in two settings, either for a wedding day or for your burial day. Wedding day or burial day, two very significant days. That's typically what this kind of expensive ointment would be used for. This ointment that the woman had is also so valuable that it would have been her, her nest egg, so to speak, or her financial security to where maybe she doesn't get married, but she comes into a tight spot. At least she has this. She can sell this. She can live off of this for a year. This ointment is so valuable that it would cost nearly a year's salary. I couldn't imagine spending a year's salary on some cologne or some perfume. If you've done that, tip of the cap to you. I just I don't have that kind of cashish. And so this valuable ointment she takes and she breaks over Jesus' head to anoint him. Now the disciples are frustrated. And, and they, they express their frustrations in a way that we like to express our frustrations. Not just flat out frustrated, but in a, in a pious way. Oh, this, this could have been used for the poor. Think about how much good we could have done with this. Maybe pour half of it on on Jesus and and then sell the other half and we could use half of that value to to disperse to the poor, to provide food or to do whatever we can with it. But but don't put it all on on Jesus. That seems a little bit unreasonable. The passage here talks about how the disciples were frustrated with this. Now, in John's Gospel... We're told that it was Judas who sparked these murmurs. And Calvin has an interesting take on this, which, which I found to be insightful. He says, none of the others would ever have dared to murmur if the wicked slander of Judas had not served for a torch to kindle them. 
But when he began, under a plausible pretext, to condemn the expense as superfluous, all of them easily caught the contagion. Calvin continues, This example shows that danger, shows what danger arises from malignant and envenomed tongues. For even those who are naturally reasonable and candid and modest, if they do not exercise prudence and caution, are easily deceived by unfavorable speeches and led to adopt false judgments. He goes on to warn us. He says, if light and foolish credulity induced the disciples of Christ to take part with Judas, what shall become of us if we are too easy in entertaining murmurers? talks about all the disciples, those who are following Jesus, who are more intimately united with Jesus than anyone else on the planet. They all turn on Jesus here. And it all started with a murmur from Judas. So Calvin points out, if the disciples who are with Jesus can be that led astray by one murmur, what could become of us if we entertain, if we are too easy in entertaining murmurers? Brothers and sisters, we are called to use our words to upbuild one another. If we see sin in one another's lives, we're called to lovingly point it out. But we're called to go to the person. We see Judas here murmuring with the other disciples, and then they all bring the the charge to Jesus. And then Jesus corrects the disciples. He says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. This woman in breaking this ointment, this valuable ointment over Jesus, has shown incredible devotion to Jesus. She gave up likely her greatest possession, her inheritance, her financial security, all for Christ. She poured out her future onto Christ. It was an exemplary sacrifice of faith. This woman took her greatest possession poured it onto Christ, poured it onto Jesus because she knew that this thing, as great of a possession as it really was, there's a greater one to be had in Christ. So she pours it out onto him. And Jesus says, for you always have the poor, but you don't always have me. Now this passage could easily be used for let's not engage in serving the poor. They'll always be here. We'll never, we'll never, never solve the problem. So why would we engage? Let's just focus on Growing in our knowledge and understanding of Christ. Yes, we should focus on growing in our knowledge and understanding of Christ. However, that should drive us to serving one another, to loving our neighbor as ourselves. This passage isn't used, shouldn't be used to say we shouldn't engage in serving the poor. It should be used to show the disciples here the urgency and the short time that they have with Jesus. Jesus is letting them know, I'm about to die. You say I'm your greatest love, your greatest possession, so to speak. And you're upset at an act that reflects that. Where is your act that reflects that? He's trying to point to the disciples that this is an act of great devotion that Mary did to him. She has done what she could. He says, she has anointed my body. Others certainly could have done more than Mary. But she, had, she did what she could. Each of us today are called to do what we can for Christ. 
There's always others out there who could do more. And I'm not selling, they're not telling you to sell everything that you have and go live under a bridge. I'm not saying that. I'm saying today, where the Lord has placed you, what can you do to honor Christ, to honor the body? He says, she has done what she could. She anointed my body. She did what she could to bring a pleasing aroma to the body of Christ. Thomas Brooks, Puritan preacher and author, says it is not the knowing, nor the talking, nor the reading man, but the doing man that at last will be found the happiest man. Yes, knowledge is tremendous. We want to pursue that. We say we're a church that we want to be theologically rich. It means we need to grow in our knowledge and understanding of who Jesus is. We also need to be missionally engaged. We need to take what the Lord has shown us in his word and take it to others. It's the doing man that will be found the happiest man. And Jesus tells them, he said, look, what she did was so great, was such a great example of devotion to me, that in fact, whenever, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. It's happening right now. The other side of the world, 2,000 years later, we are talking about this woman. So we gather around the gospel. We are talking about this woman and her devotion to Jesus. Jesus' words are true. Mary's devotion led to her sacrifice for Jesus. Her devotion to Jesus led to her sacrifice for Jesus. So is there anything, all of us in the room, is there anything that we are unwilling to sacrifice for Christ? Whatever that thing is, we define as an idol. We define as a false god. It may be a good thing. Most of the sins that you see in Scripture are good things used the wrong way. Are good things elevated above God. It's not that they're bad things. It's that they need to be in their, their proper place. So this good thing, an, an ointment, she did not value it above Christ. And she showed that with her actions. Is there anything that we're unwilling to sacrifice for Christ? Further, Christian, are we prone to murmur like Judas? When we're frustrated, are we willing to go to those that may have offended us? It's easy to murmur. It's easy to be frustrated in a pious way. Be careful. Not saying never bring up concerns. By all means, there's a concern in a brother or sister, or there's a concern at the church. You should bring that up. However, speak candidly. Go straight to the person. Don't murmur. Maybe we entertain murmurers. It can be just as destructive. Another question is, do our lives reflect a devotion to Jesus in the way that Mary's did? So are we doing what we can to anoint the body of Christ? Are we doing what we can to bring a pleasing aroma to the body of Christ? There are at least four ways that we can do this, and these are not exclusive. You can think of other ways to bring a pleasing aroma to the body of Christ, but here are at least four. One, we can pray for other church members. We, as the church, are the local expression of the body of Christ. A way to bring a pleasing aroma to anoint the body of Christ, to be a blessing to the body of Christ, is to pray for other church members. Pray that they would enjoy Christ more. It's a compelling witness when we are a people who just enjoy Christ. 
Not that we're doing what we do out of obligation or begrudging submission, but because we love our Savior. Pray for other church members that they would enjoy Christ more, that they would grow in their discipleship. They would engage in discipleship. That they would grow in their sanctification, that they would put sin to death. And that they would have opportunities to evangelize. Pray for one another in these ways. We would enjoy Christ more, that we would grow in our discipleship, grow in our sanctification, and that we would evangelize. And something that is of a particular encouragement is when you just get a text message from someone saying, I'm praying for you. When you think about it, think about somebody at the church, and you pray for them in some way, send them a quick text message. It might make their day. It's a way that we can love one another and encourage one another. Second thing is to pursue personal holiness. I alluded to this in our sanctification, but pursue personal holiness. It's a powerful witness when people see our desire to be holy, not because we're trying to earn our salvation, but because the one who is holy has already earned it for us, and we want to live a life that reflects gratitude to him. Third thing is is gather. An amputated member of the body cannot live. If your hand is cut off and put in the corner, it's not the body that's going to shrivel and die. It's the hand. So as mutual members of this body, let's gather with one another. Prioritize the gathering. When you prioritize the gathering, you're saying, I care about Christ's body. Care about his local expression of the body of Christ. And the fourth thing is engage in discipleship during the week. Make space during your week to meet with a brother or sister, to call them, shoot them a call, see how they're doing, shoot them a text. Make time to grab coffee, grab breakfast, grab lunch, grab dinner, whatever, whatever works for your schedule. Make time to be with one another, to encourage each other in our devotion to Christ. So we've seen the religious leader's devotion to power. We've seen Mary's devotion to Jesus. And now we see Judas's devotion to self. It's the third point in your bulletin. Judas's devotion to self. We see in verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Judas, as John's gospel says, is the one who starts these murmurs. He pretends to care about the poor. But really, Judas cares about Judas. Judas is like the politician who claims to care about a particular cause, or a particular group of people, because it ultimately benefits the politician. Judas is not concerned about the poor. Judas is concerned about Judas. We see John chapter 12. Judas, when he says, Judas said this about the poor, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. I love the Bible's candor here. He just straight up tell us. He wasn't concerned about the poor. He was a thief. He used to dip his hand into the money bag. So that, that ointment would have been sold for a year's salary. Judas would have gotten some of that. Because he would have used it for himself. Judas followed Jesus in so far as it benefited Judas. And then once it appeared more advantageous for Judas to betray Jesus, that's what he did. Because Judas cared about himself. He was devoted to self. And he sold Jesus for money. 
Matthew tells us that it was for 30 pieces of silver. Matthew 26, notice Judas's self-centeredness here when he goes to the Pharisees. What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. 30 pieces of silver was not a lot of money. Commentators will say that it was maybe three to four months worth of a a salary. So it was a nice bonus. And that's what Judas was willing to betray Jesus for. He's been with him for three years throughout his ministry. And now he's willing to give him up for a small bonus. Judas did not care about the poor. Judas was devoted to himself. And we see this passage starting with the religious leaders trying to find a way to kill Jesus by stealth. Then we see the passage ending with their solution. They've got a man inside now. A man who knows Jesus' whereabouts, knows when he'll be doing certain things, where he'll be going. Someone who could arrange his arrest by stealth. This is, Mark, we've talked about this before. Mark has these, what's called Markin sandwiches, where he makes a point and he opens up with something and then he has something that seems to be unrelated and then he closes with that thing. Opened up with the Pharisees trying to find a way to arrest him by stealth. Then we see Mary's devotion and then we see Judas providing them a way to arrest and kill him by stealth. The point of the passage, whenever Mark does this, is in the middle. We see Mary being a complete opposite example of Judas. Mary does not have the intimate relationship with Christ that Judas had. Mary did not have access to the room like Judas had. She interrupted to come to Jesus, and yet she gave everything for him. Judas had intimacy with him, and yet sold him out for a small amount of money. We see two different examples here. One who's entirely devoted to himself, and one who's entirely devoted to Jesus. Judas was devoted to Judas, even though he was in the company of the disciples. His devotion to Christ led to his departure from Christ. Mary's devotion to Christ led to her sacrifice for Christ. So Christian, we see this, this antithetical notion that we are to be devoted, not to ourselves, but to Christ. We see this in our baptism. That's what it signifies. that We've been buried. We've died to ourselves. We've been risen with Christ, risen to new life. The New Testament calls us slaves of Christ. The term slave for the Christian is one that we know we are. We know that we were once slaves to our flesh, and now we're slaves to Christ. And a great paradox, that slavery to Christ actually brings about the greatest amount of freedom we could ever experience. We are slaves to Christ. We don't, we're not devoted to ourselves. We're devoted to Him. It doesn't mean we, we hate ourselves, but ourselves are no longer the highest devotion. We love others as we love ourselves, so there is a love for ourselves. However, our greatest love is Christ. So maybe you're in the room and you're not a Christian. The question would be, what is your greatest devotion? What are you willing to adjust your schedule for? What are you willing to give time over to? What are you willing to spend your money on? What is your greatest devotion? Whatever your greatest devotion is, that is where your heart is. That's your greatest love. Our devotion reflects our heart. 
So this morning, what do we love the most? Whatever that thing is, that is what we're devoted to. Whatever we're devoted to most, that is what we love most. And if it's not Christ, then it will lead to an eternity separated from him. Because we are not holy. We are not righteous. He is. And we devote ourselves to him because he's given us the foreign righteousness, the righteousness that we needed to be made right with God. And so our devotion to him is not to earn that righteousness. Our devotion to him is to reflect gratitude for giving us the righteousness that we don't deserve. We must be willing to devote everything to him. We must be willing to surrender all to him. This morning, can you, can you say with confidence that there is nothing in my life that I would not surrender to Christ? Would I be willing to surrender all of it to him? The woman's sacrifice for giving up her future, giving up this prized possession for Christ, was just a small foreshadowing of the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus would give for his people. Jesus was sold for a small price. But Jesus would pay a great price to bring those whom he sold back to him. This is the good news. that We are guilty sinners. But Jesus, through his righteousness and through the price that he paid, has provided a way for his wayward people to be restored back to God. As we continue this this book, we will see that unfold more and more in the last few chapters. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this example of Mary. We pray that we would be entirely devoted to Jesus the way that she was. We pray that we, when we feel the urge to, to be devoted to power or control in our own lives, that we would repent of that. We pray that when we feel the urge to be devoted to ourselves rather than to Christ, that we would repent of that. We ask that you would give us clarity around the areas of our lives where we do need to confess and turn. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would equip us and empower us to do this. We recognize that we cannot do that apart from you first working in us. And so we are asking that you would work in our hearts. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. We pray that if there's anyone in here who may find themselves more aligned with the religious leaders or more aligned with Judas, that they would recognize their need to repent and believe the gospel. We pray that those who are here, who are Christians, would take this good news, that a great price has been paid, and take it to to those who need to hear it. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the sacrifice that he's given us this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen.